This is a podcast from BFM 89.9, The Business Station. Good afternoon, this is Law and Behold on The Bigger Picture. I'm Juliet Jacobs. GE15 is just around the corner. 19th November is the date Malaysians go to the polls. So this month on our episode of Law and Behold, we want to look at our constitutional right to vote. We're also going to discuss amendments that might affect this round of general elections, including the lowering of the voting age, automatic voter registration, so many different things we want to discuss. And of course, Law and Behold is our monthly series which aims to arm Malaysians with constitutional literacy done in collaboration with the Malaysian Bar, the University of Malaya's Faculty of Law and the Malaysian Centre for Constitutionalism and Human Rights. This month, I'm joined by Emeritus Professor Dr. Dr. Haji Shad Salim Faruqi, holder of the Tunku Abdul Rahman Chair at the University of Malaya and Ki Hui Yi, a lawyer with Kanasilingam & Co. Welcome both of you. How are you today? Thank you. Uh, thank you for having us. Always a pleasure. Thank you so much for joining me today. So, uh, yes, you know, very... I'm very excited about this episode, yeah, and I think everyone's feeling the elections fever now, of course. I just about a week more to go. Uh, Hui, maybe I can start with you and maybe we can spend a few minutes to discuss those very recent amendments to the constitution, right? So that was passed with bipartisan support in the 14th parliamentary uh, sittings. So firstly, the lowering of the voting age to 18 from 21 and also automatic voter registration. Uh, Can you just remind our listeners about those two? Hi, Juliet. Thanks for having me. Um, so, yeah, in uh, July 2019, uh, the Amendment Act was passed, Constitution Amendment Act 2019, which I think it came into force in September 2019. So, uh, Article 47 and Article 119 uh, were amended. Uh, so, essentially, uh, without going into details, uh, reading out the provisions, um, like what you have said, that uh, now every citizen who has achieved the age of 18 um, can vote in the election. And um, Article 1194B also talks about uh, the wording has changed. It now says uh, anybody who is registered rather than uh, in the olden days, it says that you must apply uh, for registration. Mm-hmm. So uh, I- I'm not sure whether um, people remember that I think before this, uh, even in the 2018 election, before that, um, all the political parties, you will see them at some shopping malls, having booths trying to help us register. And it was not an easy process. I've personally done that before. Uh, It was my first time voting uh, in 2018. Mm -hmm. Uh, Before that, uh, it was a tedious process to register. I remember even some of the volunteers called up many times to check on me, whether my name has appeared or on the SPR website. And I remember it took a while and uh, I was fortunate enough to, to participate in the last uh, general election. So, uh, but but now uh, we shouldn't have to worry about that, uh, but uh, you should still check. You can type in your IC number on the SPR website to um, see your polling station and whether you can vote uh, for this election. And um, the amendment to article uh, 47 of the federal constitution uh, has lowered the age uh, for a citizen to run as an MP. So uh, as long as you're 18 years old, you can now run uh, for election as a member of parliament. However, uh, the to be a senator, you still have to be at least 30 years old. 
Mm-hmm. Okay. All right. So th- those were the major changes. And uh, Prof, now maybe I can talk to you, you know, of course, voting is our right, right? It's our constitutional right. Would you be able to highlight and maybe explain some of the basic features of our electoral system, especially th- these two things, um, the system of single member constituencies with a, and I'm quoting here, first past the post system? Yeah. Uh, thank you so much, Juliet. Uh, this electoral system is a huge topic. And uh, all that can be done is actually to have a very superficial overview. Now, there are many electoral systems in the world. Simple plurality system that we have and about 42 other countries have uh, basically is this, that if there are 222 seats in the Devan Rayat, there'll be 222 constituencies. Mm. So one seat per constituency. Each citizen has a right to one vote, and uh, there is no limit to the number of candidates per constituency. So there could be, I understand in some constituency, up to 10 candidates. Now, when the voting is counted, when the votes are counted, there is no requirement that the quote winner, unquote, should have 50% plus one vote, as long as he has the largest vote. You you called it uh, first past the post. Actually, that's a misnomer. It's not your misnomer. It's the political science textbooks misnomer. There's no post that they have to overtake. They have to cross. Basically, it is simple plurality as long as you have the largest vote. So if I may give an example, if there were three candidates, one got 32%, another one got 35%, uh, 33%. And the third got 35%. Mm. 32, 33, 35. The guy who gets 35 can beat his chest and say, I am the Wakil Raya. Actually, 65% voted against him. (laughs) So this is the problem of our system. The problem is that the so-called Wakil Raya is not really very much of a Wakil of the riot. But at the same time, the advantage of our system is that there is no need for a second poll. In countries like France, if no one wins a clear majority, the top two candidates will contest again. So that requires more money, that requires more time, and people get tired of the electoral process. A third system is proportional representation system, which is the most common in the world. That is this Constituencies are large with multiple seats. Mm-hmm. Now, uh, there may be 10 seats in the same constituency. Now, when the voters vote, they have only one vote. Now, if a party wins 40% of the vote, it gets 40% of the 10 seats. It will get four. Another party wins 20% of the votes, it will get two seats. So this is a much more democratic system. Its disadvantage is that no one wins a clear majority. You have what we call a hung parliament. Italy, Israel, New Zealand are clear examples of this. New Zealand, not so much now, but certainly um, Israel. Uh, Would you believe me if I say in the last four years, Israel has had Five general elections. Wow, I didn't realize <laughs> because, that. Because nobody won a clear majority and so the government could not be formed. So our system then actually is 
a simple plurality system. It's called uh, first past the post. I, I disagree with that nomenclature. There's no post which you have to pass. A, a very positive aspect of our system, which I should not forget to mention, is that we have universal adult franchise. Uh, everyone above 18, irrespective of race or religion or gender or ethnicity or region, uh, wealth or uh, education. I, I've been asked in my class, uh, how come MPs are not required to have qualifications? And I caution the students to say, if you require educational qualifications, basically what you are saying is this, that the poor who because of poverty could not get educated will now suffer a double jeopardy. They can also not contest or uh, uh, take part in democracy's iconic exercise. Mm -hmm. So I think this is beautiful that there is a universal adult franchise. And as I mentioned earlier, uh, uh, because of the simple plurality system, there is no need for a second ballot. And the advantage of our system is that normally it produces a party or coalition with a majority. And uh, I, I can mention Malaysia's example from 1959 when we had the first election to 2018, there was always a party or coalition with a clear-cut majority. Actually, even in 2018, there was a majority, but in 2020, that was lost because of hopping. So that's our system. And uh, I, I just uh, end with one uh, particular point, and that is this. It has some defects, other defects. One defect is that there is malapportionment. Constituencies are not equal in size. Mm, yeah. uh, for example, if I may just... Uh, Give you these are extreme examples, but nevertheless, uh, uh, let me just point out to you: Sardang has three hundred fifty thousand voters for one seat. Yeah. Bagan Dato has fifty-eight thousand voters per seat, which means it is six times smaller. Uh, uh, Klang has two hundred ten thousand voters per seat. Lengong has twenty-seven thousand per seat. 7.7 .7 times. Now, some people will say, oh, this is uh, evil, this is wrong. Yes, I, I, I know it's undemocratic, but this is a worldwide problem. A and the problem is this, Juliet, that there are areas which are primarily rural, yeah. agricultural, or forest, or oceans, or lakes. Now, are you going to give them the same weightage in parliament? despite their huge territory, as let us say, a very densely populated small area. Sarawak is almost as big as the whole of Peninsula Malaya. Almost, almost. Are you gonna are you gonna give Sarawak the same kind of weightage in parliament despite its huge territories? Mm -hmm. uh, as let us say, Vilaya Persekatuan. Uh, so I think this is a problem. One person one vote, one value is the ideal. But at the same time, we've got to take note of large rural areas with sparse population. 
Okay, um, we'll just go for a quick break. When we come back, uh, let's talk a little bit more about, you know, uh, what's happening in this particular elections because, you know, some of them, uh, the states are not going for elections uh, as, you know, in, as it used to before. So we'll find out more about that after this quick break. I'm speaking today to Emeritus Professor Dr. Dr. Haji Shad Salim Faruqi, holder of the Tunku Abdul Rahman Chair at the University of Malaya and Ki Hui Yi, a lawyer with Kanasilingam & Co. Another episode of Law & Behold, we're talking about our rights to vote. Uh, we'll be back after this quick break. Keep it right here on on Law and Behold, on The Bigger Picture, BFM 89.9. Welcome back. This is Law and Behold, on The Bigger Picture. I'm Juliet Jacobs. With me today, Emeritus Professor Dr. Dr. Haji Shad Salim Faruqi, holder of the Tunku Abdul Rahman Chair at the University of Malaya, and Ki Hui Yi, a lawyer with Kanasilingam & Co. And we're talking about our right to vote, uh, our constitutional right to vote, right? So, um, we, you know, for these elections, things are a little bit different, right, compared to before. So, we know that the states led by Pakatan Harapan, so that's Penang, Negeri Sembilan, Selangor, uh, as well as those led by PAS, so Trenganu, Kelantan, Kedah, they've opted not to hold their state elections simultaneously with GE15. Um, can you just explain that a little bit? You know, do we, you know, for anyone who's confused by that, do we still have to vote on ni- the 19th of November if your state assembly has not been dissolved? Um, can you also explain the differences between parliament and, you know, Dewan Undangan Negara? Negeri, sorry. Yeah, I, I think this time around, uh, it's a bit confusing and it, it <laughs> will probably be more and more confusing. I think Prof will agree with me. And, uh, you know, with the uh, automatic voters registration coming in and, you know, so many new voters coming in, uh, many are actually confused. And I, I don't know, you know, when the politicians are campaigning, uh, whether they are deliberately confusing the voters as well. Um, in a sense that I think uh, if you are from, for example, I'm from Johor, uh, usually I will be voting, I will have, um, I'll call it two votes. Mm-hmm. I'll vote for the MP, Member of Parliament. I'll also vote for my Adun, Ali Dewan uh, Undangan Negeri. That's your uh, state assembly person. Uh, however, if you remember, uh, Johor, we just had our election Correct. in March this year. Mm-hmm. So uh, the, the state assembly uh, has not been dissolved. And uh, like what Julia said earlier, uh, some of the states uh, led by the Pakatan Harapan and PAS, they have also uh, decided not to dissolve uh, the state assembly. Uh, However, you need to remember, uh, you still have to go back to vote for your uh, MP, uh, parliament. And uh, because, uh, okay, just a little bit about our system. Our system is modeled after the British system. Mm-hmm. Um, the West, we call it the Westminster style um, of parliamentary government. We have both the federal government and we also have the state government. And um, at the federal level, uh, we are bicameral. Uh, you know, we have our elected House of Representatives, your uh, Dewan Rakyat. We also have the Senate uh, Dewan Negara. Uh, so all these, if you want to know more, you can read uh, in our federal constitution. It's, uh, if I remember correctly, it's under part four of chapter four, uh, federal legislature. And uh, you go further down, part five, it talks about the states. So we have 13 state assemblies. And uh, the I think the biggest difference really is that uh, parliament and DUN, they have different uh, legislative powers. And Article 74 talks about what are the matters that can be legislated by the parliament and the state. Uh, if you look at the ninth schedule, we have what we call the federal list, uh, the state list, and the concurrent list. 
Uh, I think we've covered this in a, a previous yes. episode. Yes. And, you know, um, uh, matters like about international treaties, uh, only the parliament, uh, it's under the federal list, only the federal government can make a decision on this uh, type of issues. Uh, under the state list, uh, we talk about uh, personal law, uh, the, the religion, and concurrent list means that both um, the federal and state have powers to legislate. And I think in the previous episode, we've also um, discussed about how uh, during the MCO, during COVID times, uh, there was an issue, who should be uh, issuing the circulars, who should be issuing the uh, SOPs about uh, health, because yes. uh, technically it falls under concurrent list. Okay. All right. Um. And and just moving. Juliet, can I? Yeah, can yes. I just clarify on this? Sure. Um. Uh, not not to clarify. I just want to allay some fears. Ten out of thirteen states are not having elections for the state assembly, but I don't think uh, it will cause um, too much problem because um, the election officers will hand over in these three states: Perak, Pahang, and Perlis they'll hand over two ballot papers. In the other 10 states, only one ballot paper will be handed over, and that is for the federal election. So I, I, I think it's manageable. But it's it's good to point out that in 10 states, it will be only one ballot paper. Mm -hmm. And in uh, three states, there'll be two ballot papers. Thank you. Okay. And, you know, speaking of election sort of representative, I wanted to talk a little bit about the election commission, right? Because, I mean, I was reading that the constitution does not give details on how elections are conducted, right? And that's where the election commission comes in, right? Um, Prof, maybe you can briefly explain what the election commission is, you know, the role it plays, those sorts of things? Oh, yes, it has a very central role. Uh, in the electoral process. And in fact, the constitution shows great tenderness for seeking or achieving impartiality. The authority responsible for the conduct of elections and related matters is an election commission whose chairman and members are vested with many of the safeguards available to superior court judges. They're appointed by the king after consultation with the conference of rulers. They hold office until age 66, just like judges. But whether they act with impartiality uh, is a matter of their character and mm. integrity. They have the following functions. First of all, they maintain and update the electoral role. But this job now has become uh, intertwined with the National Registration Department because of automatic uh, registration. Then they delineate the constituencies, draw the lines, hopefully without male apportionment and without drawing constituency lines to favor a political party. That's uh, a, a very significant criticism of their behavior, but that's part of their job, constituency delineation. Then conducting the elections and counting the votes, enforcing the election offenses law, uh, ensuring that the candidates have the eligibility. So as uh, uh, Hui pointed out, senators, uh, of course, they don't go for election. Devan Raat members must be at least 18, previously 21. They must not suffer any disqualification. Uh, I, I'm sure we all remember just a few days ago in Sabah, there was a riot, small riot, because the candidate had uh, been convicted of an offense and then he was disqualified and that caused uh, 
uh, a lot of bad feelings uh, on the part of supporters. So the candidate must not suffer any disqualification, uh, no conviction for more than 12 months. He must not be of unsound mind. He must not have committed an election offense. Then, of course, there are rules for the eligibility of voters. The voters must be of the right age. They must be citizens. They must be resident. They also must not suffer any disqualifications which are uh, laid down in the Constitution. So I think the Election Commission has uh, a very significant role. May I just add one last point? People believe the Election Commission is supposed to handle only the election to the Devan Raya. That's not entirely true. Actually, they are supposed to handle election to the Devan Negara also, mm. if the law allows for that. The constitution permits the Devan Raya to be popularly elected. But the article in the constitution has not been utilized. The constitution, of course, also requires the election commission to take care of state assembly elections. And finally, local authority elections are also in the hand of the election commission. Up to the 60s, it was so then local authority elections were uh, abolished. So the election commission actually uh, has a role uh, in relation to four types of elections. But at the moment, actually, they take care only of two types of elections. Thank you. Okay. All right. Thanks for clearing that up, Prof. And if I can also ask you again, Prof, you know, with these elections coming up, what do you think are some of the major pre-election issues uh, that voters and candidates might be facing? Well, there are lots of pre-election issues. Uh, number one was this, that the life of parliament is five years, but the prime minister and the Mantri Basar chief minister have the right to advise the head of the state to dissolve the house prematurely. However, uh, the head of the state has a clear discretion to say no. But normally, under constitutional convention, head of the state will uh, allow the prime minister to choose the timing of the election. Almost all of the last 14 elections were premature before the five years were up. Right. Once parliament is dissolved, and you know, may I point out to you, parliament is not dissolved, it's the Devan Raya that is dissolved, but somehow the constitution uses the word parliament. Mm -hmm. Parliament consists of Yangdi Pertonagong, Devan Nagara, Devan Rayat. Only the last one, Devan Rayat, is dissolved. Now, once parliament is dissolved, what happens to the government? Uh, there is a caretaker government in place. The caretaker government, government's powers, functions, duties, procedures are not provided for anywhere in the law. So, conventions or traditions apply, the caretaker must basically play the role of a, uh, what do we call it? Hold the fort. Mm -hmm. Hold the fort. Basically perform the essential functions. Don't dismiss anyone. Don't make new appointments. Don't make any financial commitments. Don't have new major policies that may embarrass the new government. So that's the caretaker government. By the way, in Australia and in the UK, they have what they call white papers. They have sort of policy guidelines in, in written documents, which are not law, 
but nevertheless written documents. Then, of course, a pre-election issue is that there are rules about nomination date. Contrary to what is believed, it's not the prime minister. It's not the Yang Di Parton Agong who decides on the nomination date. Once the Agong agrees to dissolve the house, election commission takes over and then decides on what date will be the nomination day. What day or date will be the election day. The constitution simply gives this guideline that from the day of the dissolution, election shall be held within 60 days. And the new parliament, elected parliament, must be brought back to session within 120 days of the dissolution. Yeah. Now, how many days uh, of campaigning? Uh, the minimum period is 11 days. Then, of course, there are rules about deposit. Um, there are rules about the conduct of campaigns. There are rules about election expenses and election offenses. Uh, and then, uh, of course, there is the question of the uh, counting of votes. I have myself attended counting of votes. And actually, candidates are allowed to have their nominees present. And so when a ballot paper is counted, it is actually opened up and shown like that to the uh, candidates' nominees to the agents then put in the in the box mm. and the numbers are kept. So in that respect, there is openness and accountability issues. Okay. All right. And um, Hui, you know, earlier Prof mentioned, you know, when we were talking about election commission, he also mentioned something about election, uh, election offences, right? I mean, what actions are considered election offences? Can you talk about some common, uh, common offences under the Election Offences Act 1954? Yes, uh, we have to look at Election Offences Act 1954 and uh, Part 2 of the Act uh, talks about electoral uh, offences. Uh, one example is that uh, the voter cannot uh, be voting at more than one polling station uh, in one uh, election. Uh, and then uh, this is more about the conduct at the polling station, how the elections are being conducted. But if we look at Part 3, uh, the title is Corrupt Practices. I think this is something that uh, we more often discuss mm -hmm. and um, it talks about personation, whether you're trying to impersonate a, a living person or a dead person, uh, trying to vote at the uh, police station, uh, it's illegal. And uh, treating, whether you are giving or you are accepting directly or indirectly uh, it doesn't have to be money. Mm -hmm. It can be in the form of drinks, refreshment, food. Um, I think uh, in the past, there are also uh, about uh, bus tickets, traveling allowances to go to uh, the polling station and stuff like that. Actually, all these are, are not allowed under the Act. And uh, of course, uh, you shouldn't be using undue influence. Uh, this means that you shouldn't be uh, you know, using... Uh, you shouldn't threaten someone that you are going to use force or violence mm. uh, to influence somebody uh, from either uh, voting for a certain party, a certain candidate, or from uh, not voting at all. And of course, uh, the last one, we have bribery. And um, I think the uh, most recent case that I can think about is the Cameron Highlands uh, election petition. 
filed by the the uh, DP member, uh, one of the candidates, um, uh, Mano Manogaran, in 2018 after the uh, last GE, yeah. and he filed the election petition against the M MIC candidate uh, uh, Sivaraj. If I remember his name correctly, uh, he was named as the respondent in the election uh, petition. So if you and and the high court actually allowed uh, this election petition and uh, declared that uh, result uh, void, and that's why that's when they had uh, another election just for Cameron Highlands uh, at that time. And if you look at the grounds of judgment written by uh, Justice uh, Aziza Nawawi. Uh, when she was sitting as a high court judge, she uh because it was like a it was trial, uh Orang Asli was were coming to the court to give evidence, talking about how uh secret money was given to them, to the mm -hmm. buttons, mm -hmm. and induced them to vote for uh Barisan National at the time. Mm -hmm. So it is it's very interesting. And I think uh, you know, it's it's not easy for something like this to happen because you know, imagine how uh the rakyat had to come to court to talk about this, uh, whether they are worried about their uh, safety. Uh, mm. I think I will be quite scared, yeah. even though I'm a lawyer, to you know to talk about uh, things like this in court and being cross-examined by by the lawyers. And yeah, so I, I would encourage uh, everybody to look at this case. It's very interesting. Mm -hmm. And let's say we saw something, you know, you saw someone committing an offence, you know, what can we actually do? Uh, if it happens at a polling station, you can actually uh, complain to the uh, returning officer. Uh, however, uh, Prof can correct me if I'm wrong, that uh, the returning officer doesn't have, I would say doesn't have much power to say that to stop the election. Mm. The, the returning officer is supposed to ensure that uh, the, the laws, the practices are being complied with. Uh, the returning officer cannot just stop people from voting. And uh, what uh, people people usually do, which we, I think we've seen in the past that uh, the uh, voters will lodge a police report. Uh, but again, I think, you know, the, the practical effect is there's no way you can stop uh, the election immediately. Mm -hmm. Of course, you can go through the process, go to court, file the election petition, but it takes time and, and you know, there's no way on the uh, polling day uh, you can do something uh, immediately. Mm -hmm. But it can enact change as we saw with the case in Cameron Highlands. It is a long process, yes. but it can actually happen. Yes. Mm -hmm. Juliet, can I just add? Sure. I think racist and divisive speeches are also illegal mm. under the Election Offences Act. I, I, I know lots of people don't obey uh, they 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 violate the law, but I just want to point out the law bans racist and divisive speeches of this sort. Uh, but I, I I know between the law in the book and the law in action, there's a lot of difference. Mm -hmm. Just wanted to add that. Okay, I think we saw the Klang, well the former Klang MP actually making a report right about uh, a TV station that he claimed was making racist comments as well. So yeah, yes, I, yes, yeah, yes, yeah. So okay, we meet. Yeah, at least make those reports. Who knows, right? Um, one more quick break, uh, and then we'll come back. You know, before this, you know, Prof, you were talking about uh, pre-election issues. Let's come back and talk about some post-election issues. I'm speaking today to Emeritus Professor Dr. Dr. Haji Shad Salim Faruqi, holder of the Tunku Abdul Rahman Chair at the University of Malaya, and Ki Hui Yi, a lawyer with Kanasilingam 
Menko. It's another episode of Law and Behold, where we want to arm you all with your with constitutional literacy. We're focusing on our rights to vote today. We'll have more. One more quick break. Keep it right here on Law and Behold on the Bigger Picture, BFM 89.9. Welcome back. This is Law and Behold on The Bigger Picture. I'm Juliet Jacobs. With me today, Emeritus Professor Dr. Haji Shad Salim Faruqi, holder of the Tunku Abdul Rahman Chair at the University of Malaya, and Ki Hui Yi, a lawyer with Kanasilingam & Co. We are tackling our right to vote, our G15, just around the corner, 19th of November. All of us are going to, I mean, all of us who can will be going to the polls. So, um, Prof, you know, before the break, of course, you did lay out so beautifully some of the major pre-election issues, right, that voters and candidates might face. What are some major post-election issues mm-hmm. after the results are declared that you that you could you know talk to us about? I think the major uh, issue after an election is the appointment of the Prime Minister and the government of the day. If there is a party or a coalition that achieves a simple majority, 50% plus one, then uh, under the constitution the leader of that party or coalition uh, has a legitimate expectation of being invited to form the government of the day. Mm-hmm. And I think in all the elections up to 2013, um, this is what happened. But in 2018, I know there was some delay from what we know from the newspapers. Uh, evidently, the Yang Di Pertonagong invited Dato Siwan Aziza to form the government because she was the leader of the coalition that went into the election. But she declined because the coalition had agreed on a leader and the leader was then Tun Mahathir. Uh, So that's the first issue that a prime minister has to be appointed. If there is a clear-cut leader, it's not much of an issue. But uh, Juliet just alerting the citizenry. There may be a party that may win the election or a coalition, but they may be deeply divided on the leadership issue. There may be a tussle for leadership, in which case the young Dipartonagong will have to appoint someone. The Agong cannot rule the country on his own mm-hmm. in a constitutional monarchy. He has to appoint someone. In some countries, what has happened is this, that the, the ruler, uh, by whatever name called the president or the sultan, may appoint someone from a third party as a caretaker or as a provisional while the ruling party um, sorts out its problem of uh, leadership. So that's uh, number one, that uh, leadership issue in a party with a clear majority. A second possibility is no party or coalition may achieve a majority. So we have a hung parliament. Mm-hmm. In a hung parliament, the challenge for the young Dipartonagong is actually, again, to appoint a government that is most likely to command the confidence of a majority of the members of the House. And I think in, 19, in 2020 and in 2021, the young Dipartonagong was faced with this challenge that he had to appoint someone as PM uh, who did not necessarily, uh, at least at the very outset, did not necessarily command the confidence of a majority. Yeah. Then the next issue or the third issue is 
because it's a hung parliament, can the king call an immediate repeat election? Mm. My answer to that is no, because the constitution is very clear that once dissolution takes place, the new parliament must meet within 120 days. So parliament, the new parliament must meet. Only after parliament has met, can the caretaker or provisional prime minister advise the king to dissolve the house a second time and then a new election take place. Like what I told you in Israel, mm. in four years, five elections took place. Mm. So that's the issue of double dissolution. And finally, an issue in post-election period is defections. We have had tragic um, and shameful uh, problems of defections at the federal level, at the state level. Uh, so many of the states actually, I'm told 38 to 40 MPs at the federal level switched camps. Um, now, um, now a law has been passed, of course, which says that individual MPs, whether belonging to a party or coalition or independents, individual MPs cannot switch camps. If they do, their seat will fall vacant on the day the speaker so declares. Once the speaker is notified, within 21 days, he must make a decision. He must inform the election commission, which must hold a by-election within 60 days. However, the person who caused this problem, the defector, the hopper, he is allowed to recontest. He's not disqualified. Okay. Uh, however, uh, the law is not entirely clear. And I think we have to wait and see how it works. As far as I can see, there is no ban on the entire political party or the entire coalition switching camps, joining with another coalition. So let us say uh, X is member of a party. The whole party now, lock, stock and barrel, goes and joins another coalition in order to form the government of the day. That is not forbidden. Seat won't be declared vacant. So someone jokingly said, so if an individual does it, it's wrong. If a group does it, it's okay. <laughs> oh, no. So I think these are some of the issues in the post-election period. Thank you. Okay. All right. And, and you know, following that, right, can the results of an election ever be challenged? You know, can the EC or the court declare the election result as null and void? Uh, yeah. Is, is that a possibility? Uh, my impression is, uh, though, who you could please uh, help me on this. My impression is that it's not the election commission that declares the election null and void. I think that's the job of the court. Okay. Uh, it, we call it election court, but actually it's a judge of the high court. At one time, when the election court made a decision, its decision was final and conclusive, not to be questioned anywhere. But then they amended the law, uh, and this is to be commended. They amended the law. Now, actually, the decision of the election court can be appealed in the normal uh, uh 
court process. So yes, the court can question whether the election was illegal and the court can declare the seat vacant. In the past, there were many such challenges, but in general, around the world, judges are reluctant to declare an election uh, uh, illegal or null and void. But we have some cases. Mm-hmm. Why, why would you say they are uh, hesitant to do that? It's just the, the whole process of it? Well, yeah, it will cost money. Okay. It will it will result in people having to come out again. So the, the, the benefit of doubt is given uh, as far as possible. But nevertheless, uh, there are cases where the courts uh, will declare the result, uh, uh, declare the election to be null and void. Okay. All right. Ahui, something you wanted to add to that? Yeah, I think another challenge um, for election petition to be filed is because of the very strict uh, timeline. Uh-huh. Yes, yes, yes. Uh, so under Section 38, you're supposed to file election petition within 21 days of the date of publication of the result mm-hmm. uh, in the Gazette. So, you know, 21 days is very short. Uh, yeah. Whether you can gather uh, enough materials, evidence, witnesses to uh, sort of, uh, and, and draft your papers. You know, the challenge that lawyers always have is that we are always competing with time. Uh, it's, it's not easy. Uh, and they are very strict. And what Prof said, I think the court's very reluctant uh, to, to actually uh, um, let this process go through uh, so easily because like what Prof said, uh, it has a huge impact. Uh, like what we see uh, in the uh, Cameron Highlands election petition, that the moment uh, the result is declared null and void, mm. uh, everybody has come back to court. Mm. And it, of course, it costs money. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, but I think uh, it is a good mechanism uh, why the court uh, has this power to declare uh, the result not on board and not easy. I think this also has to do with, you know, the balance. Uh, we need the court to check on the executive uh, arm and uh, who can file an election petition uh, in the Act, the, under the Election Offences Act. He says that um, anybody who has voted or had a right to vote, uh, it doesn't mean that you, you voted, uh, only you voted, you can file the petition. Mm. Uh, as long as you had the right to vote in the election, you can uh, file the election petition. Uh, so, yeah, and, and the relief that you can claim is that you can ask the court to make a declaration that the election is void um, and you can also ask um, the uh, declaration that the person was not duly elected or ought not to have been returned. And uh, where the seat is claimed for an unsuccessful candidate on the ground, that he had majority of lawful votes uh, for scrutiny. So basically, uh, the court has uh, quite a wide power uh, to deal with uh, the uh, result if uh, some offences, some wrongs, were found uh, during the uh, process. Okay, all right. So we've just got a little over a week to go. Um, I don't know, what do you think is going to happen? What's your prognosis, Prof? (laughs) Uh, Very difficult. Uh, Juliet, this election, I think more than any other, is very difficult to predict. There are too many variable, unpredictable factors. For example, I do not know uh, the flood situation mm-hmm. that may affect the turnout, the COVID situation, 
the only 18 everyone is hoping that the young will uh, go out in large numbers but i do not know whether they have the means and they have the mind uh, to go out uh, they may um, be indifferent they may be disgusted with what's going on so uh, we don't know uh, how many of the only 18 and then who ye pointed out the avr and you also mentioned the avr almost 7 million new voters because of avr um, now i'm wondering about something will these people be able to vote nearest to where they are working or living because avr relies on the national registration department mm. which relies on your address in the ic so if you are registered on your on your ic in sarawak and you're working in kl your vote is in sarawak yep. unless unless you had re-registered later on. So I'm not so sure because of the short time. Um, Hui was correct that actually the law was passed in 2019, but it got it got gazetted only 2022. Yes. So just the last few months, did these 7 million people look up where they are eligible to vote? So if they are working in KL and their name appears somewhere in uh, Kota Kinawalu, I'm not so sure that they'll be able to show up. Uh, so that's the other issue. And then, of course, uh, uh, what the role of Saba Sarawak will be. Saba Sarawak together have 56 seats. Now, 56 out of 222 is only one fourth. But bear in mind, 222 50% is 112. Mm. 56 is 50% of 112. So actually, Sabah Sarawak have 50% of the seats necessary to form the government of the day. 56 out of 112 is 50% of the seats necessary. Sabah Sarawak may have a massive impact, but there are no clear favorites, Juliet. Nobody may have an overwhelming uh, majority. Those days of two-thirds are gone for some time, I think. They may come back. Uh, but I'm, I'm quite hopeful, however. I, I want to end on a positive note, optimistic note. I'm quite hopeful that there will be some post-election arrangements. I don't think the political parties want to go through the nightmare of 2020 to 2022. I think there will be some post-election arrangement. And in fact, to be very frank with you, I won't be surprised if there is already behind the scenes pre-election arrangements that you don't contest here and I will contest here and I won't contest there and so on and so forth. So I, I'm quite hopeful that there'll be a post-election arrangement. There'll be uh, God willing, a stable government, like the way Tatusri Ismail Sabri was able to achieve. He was able to arrive at a memorandum of agreement uh, or understanding with the opposition. And actually, during his short 
period of prime ministership, a number of very significant amendments were passed. That era has probably arrived, whereby we may have coalition governments, unity governments, minority governments working with MOA. It's not uncommon in a very large number of parliamentary democracies, it works like that. So let's hope that there'll be a stable government. Thank you. Uh, Hui, how about for you? Um, you know, what do you think may happen? Uh, any advice perhaps, you know, for voters, candidates in the run-up to GE? Yeah, I, I'm not a political analyst, uh, but uh, I think we should, no matter what, we should do our part. We should uh, vote. And I think it is very encouraging to see that uh, many young people are uh, trying to involve themselves in this election. Um, I, agree, I entirely agree with Prof that um, EC has to think of a way uh, how to make uh, voting more convenient uh, for all the voters. Because of the lowering of the voting age, uh, many voters are students, mm. uh, fresh grad. It is extremely expensive uh, for those to fly back to East Malaysia or vice versa mm. to uh, vote because, you know, they are unable to change their address immediately. I've had friends, uh, I just spoke to them a few days ago that uh, they tried to uh, change their address because uh, they have relocated uh, after getting married, mm. uh, but they are unable to do so. Uh, you know, they are, when they check on their SPR website, it's still... Uh, the old address still reflected. Mm. So that means they still have to go back to the original address <laughs> to vote. So, yeah, I think we shouldn't, uh, no matter what, shouldn't lose hope. Uh, and we should, uh, as citizens, do our part. And yes. uh, I think our vote is very important, um, especially in this very, very fluid uh, time. Like what Prof said, we don't know what's going to happen. We don't know who's going to work with who. Uh, even the anti-opping law doesn't prevent uh, coalition from, uh, uh, you know, jumping or, or, you know, working with another coalition after uh, the result is announced. So, you know, we just have to do our part and hope for the best. Okay. All right. Um, thank you so much, uh, both of you. Any, any other concluding messages you guys want to leave us with? I want to say this. Uh, I agree with both of you that we all have a duty to go out and vote. Uh and I want to humbly recommend to all my fellow citizens, please vote for the best candidate, irrespective of their party affiliation, religion, race, or gender. There are good and bad candidates in every political party and organization. Support candidates with integrity and ability. Support candidates who are clean, competent, and caring. And there are quite a few such candidates. I would say, Break away, break away from the tired old rhetoric of identity politics. Do not let the emotional appeal of race and religion divert you from the critical issues uh, of unemployment, inflation, predatory development policies that cause environmental degradation. Express your concern against widespread corruption and your desire for integrity, good governance, economic development, etc. Please remember, every vote matters. Thank you. 
Thank you so much, Prof. And Hui for joining me today. I've been speaking to Emeritus Professor Dr. Dr. Haji Shad Salim Faruqi, holder of the Tunku Abdul Rahman Chair, University of Malaya, and Ki Hui Yi, a lawyer at Kanasalingam & Co. If you miss any part of our conversation today, just download the podcast at bfm.my slash learn or you can find it on the BFM app. This has been Law & Behold on The Bigger Picture, BFM 89.9. You have been listening to a podcast from BFM 89.9, The Business Station. For more stories of the same kind, download the BFM app.